0: Hey, good late morning to you guys. Welcome to the Refuge Church. Um, before we get started, we're going to have a little family time. I, the last three days, was gone in uh, Yakima, actually more near Natchez, and I still don't really know how to pronounce it. Nacho, nacho Like nacho and cheese together. And, and it's truly... Just a a gem. It's one of the most beautiful places I think in Washington that I've been, and I was there for a wedding. And uh, weddings are just um, they're a lot of fun. Most of them are. Or they should be at least. And this one was amazing. I got to spend uh, the the three days with the family of the groom at this log lodge. Out in the woods, uh, the the Maxwell's. I know Tessie knows them really well, and and just a real beautiful family, and and I can't help but think, especially coming back to preach to you guys, how in the Bible the our expectation of what it's like when we get to heaven is a wedding feast, and and so the anticipation. You know, as I got to spend three days in this lodge with them and just be like just totally loved by their family, I was. Uh, Man, I, I just kept thinking, like, this, this really is what... Can you guys still hear me? Okay, okay. Um, this really is what church should be. It should be this expectation of the wedding feast, right? This time that we come together. And, and just because we're here doesn't mean that actualizes every time, right? Sometimes we can come here... And, and we're not expectant about what God has for us. Or we're not taking His promises. Or we, we come, and, and honestly, we just, we're not ready to interact with anybody or, or like extend ourselves and be loving. right? And so, man, I just want to encourage you guys that when you come on a Sunday morning, that, that you just come and you're ready to, to expect the wedding feast with one another. Um, it's so important, because unless we do that, it's going to be us each coming as individuals, trying to do our own little thing, and it's just, it won't be beautiful, and it won't be fun, and it won't be what's really intended to be, which is a celebration of Jesus, right, and the coming promise of a kingdom, right? Um, so, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the sermon. Man, I just encourage you guys, when you come, just to be ready to love each other, right? Because that's the expectation of the wedding feast. So, let's pray, and we'll get into the sermon. Oh God, maybe with the, just a little quiet as we pray and as we, as we in, hope to hear your voice, God, as we just sit here and say, Lord, give us your spirit, soften our hard hearts, that as we open the word of God, that we will be people that receive it and obey it and love it. That we are a people that treasure so many things, and, and maybe just a little bit of our desire every day or every week is, is given to seeking your kingdom. And I pray, God, that, that today you'll show us just the great worth of your kingdom, that is greater worth than anything else in this world, anything else this world has to offer. And that we can be a people that are united together. And, and just seeking you wholeheartedly. And that's powerful. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you need a Bible, Alex has Bibles. If you don't have one, feel free to keep it as a gift. So, this week is our... How are you guys doing? Are you guys doing okay? Yeah? Okay. We just look a little like this out there. Okay, okay, I just want to make sure you're with me, because I'm ready, okay, I got back at one o'clock in the morning, but I'm ready to be with you guys, okay. So here we go. This is our seventh week in our sermon series called The Beginning of Finding, and then the whole reason we started this sermon series was to welcome everyone again, to welcome everyone again here, because... We know that so many people, whether they never walk through these doors, or you have walked through these doors, are probably still in a place of looking. right? You're still in a place of searching. You're still in a place of going, is God satisfying? And so when we preach on a Sunday morning, when we welcome you guys in, we're not just assuming you all come in and are, are ready to worship. Um, so what does it look like, to, as a people together, Ask hard questions like, why would anyone want to find God? Is God worth finding? Is it possible to find God? And why does it feel sometimes like God is hiding? And, and so we've asked a lot of those questions and and we've looked at different, different people and, and where you guys might be coming from. The first week we just looked at the person who their whole life have had uh just one hopeless situation after the next, and you feel like you can't move past that. And and why would we want to find God when maybe we feel like he's just allowed us being to be in that place for a long time? And and we saw how Jesus met that woman who was sick and who just reached out for him and thought, man, he just keeps walking. And when she reached out for him, she found that all along he was the one pursuing her, and that's powerful. We looked last week at the woman. Uh, who is an outsider, just felt like, I could never be a part of what Jesus is doing. I'm just, I'm different. And that, that God is reaching out to that person. And sometimes the surprise is that those people have much more genuine faith, and much more exciting faith to watch blossom, than people who their whole life have, have claimed to have a vibrant faith. We looked at the person who was an intellectual doubter and how God even speaks to them. And the reason why we went through all of these different character sketches is because oftentimes when you embrace a certain form of doubt, you think everyone thinks that way. Right? If you're the person who has been devastated by something in your life, you think everyone has been devastated and they're just making things up in belief, right? Right? But, but honestly, we all come from, some of us might just come and we're like, man, I've been wrestling with this intellectual issue. But another person might not be. So we're dealing with them individually this week. Um, we're dealing with the satisfied individual. How does the satisfied individual begin finding God? And why would they want to find God? And that's why the sermon title today is, when you have everything you need. What about that person that just has a really good job and they can buy whatever they want, right? They can go on cruises every other weekend, right? What about that person? Why would that person want to find God? Isn't God just for the people who don't have anything better to do with their time? Right? Oftentimes we can think that. So so how does the satisfied person begin finding God? So we're going to read the story of an individual in the Bible, and we're going to look at his life. So if you turn with me to, to Luke 7, we're going to be reading verses 1 to verses 10. Luke 7, 1 to 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this... In the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. What Jesus had just finished was something we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 2, it says, There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves your na- our nation And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said this, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So who is this guy? And as was actually pointed out last week, uh, only twice in all of all of the New Testament, when Jesus is talking, does it say, "You have great faith." And and those two people were probably the greatest outsiders you can imagine: this Roman centurion, and then when l- we looked at last week, a, a Canaanite. Um, so who is this guy? The first thing is that he is successful. What we can know about the centurion is he is a man's man. He'd probably be really awesome at barbecuing. (laughs) So what we do know about centurions is that he was promoted, probably promoted regularly to get to his position. There's, in every legion, which is over a thousand soldiers, there's only 60 centurions. And so centurions were, literally, they were a soldier of were They were responsible for training men. They were training men in battle. They would make sure that their weapons were clean and that they were, they were a fighting force that would be intimidating to any other nation. And so this was his line of work. And you had to be good at it. Right? And oftentimes you had to be some form of nobility to be a centurion. Right? You had to be a man of substantial wealth and we'll look at that. But we're going to assume of this man because honestly is what we see here that not only was his success something that he saw at work and promotions, but he probably saw that success at home because people just liked this guy, right? He was probably a guy that was given a lot of awards, someone that would get invited to parties, and was just a a tremendously enjoyable individual. Uh, One might call him an individual born with a silver spoon in his mouth. I've been accused of that even though I'm not rich. But what people mean by that is they've had everything given to them, right? Every opportunity, that here you go. And that was this this man. What we know about him also is he was wealthy. Not just because of his position in the army, but it says that he was really philanthropic. He helped build the synagogue. Literally, from his wealth, he helped the Jews. He's not a Jew. He helped them build this massive structure, right? He probably had a, a stone with his name on it just to show that he was generous so this is a man that that had money and he gave his money and with that giving of the money he won friendships but with money one thing we know is that if you have money there are certain things you can do right like you could buy all the chocolate covered gummy bears you could ever want because they're expensive but you could also, you know, and so that was a joke, but, but literally, if you have money, you can be thinking constantly what you want to do with it, right? And a lot of people, so you budget, right? Budgeting's good. We support budgeting here. If you don't budget, budget. But what we do oftentimes is we just plan with that money. We got it. Some people have it, right? When we have it. What are we going to spend it on? And we, we, our mind churns with ideas, well, I, I have a nice car, but it's only an 08. <laughs> and the 2014 is so nice. And the centurion could buy that car if he wanted. He didn't just have to camp at Italy State Park if he wanted But he wouldn't, because he'd probably buy a much nicer piece of land. Right? <laughs> he, could, he could literally do whatever he wanted. And, and so we attribute to the wealth, and, and, I, and I think we can safely assume, because wealth, when it's talked about in the Bible, it's not talked about negatively, but it's talked about with warning signs. And it says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a wealthy man to inherit the kingdom. Why? Not because wealth is evil, but because wealth can corrupt so easily. Because it oftentimes turns the arrows inward. And just allows us to dream up our dreams, play out our thoughts, and do whatever we want. And so so there's danger. And it says not that money is the root of evil. It says the love of money is the root of evil. And so so this man has challenges with what he does with the money that he has. On top of that, because he is generous with what he has, and it's a beautiful thing, he's well-liked. And so how does a man like this, or why would a man like this, seek Jesus out? And I want us to put ourselves in his shoes for a second. I want us to put ourselves in, in his shoes by, by imagining, I know a, a lot of us aren't moneyed, right? We, we don't have a lot to dream up of what to do with. But, but a lot of us may be fantasized about that in the future, right? Maybe getting the next promotion so we will have more money to do what? To do what we want with it, right? To spend on ourselves, or maybe just the little amount that we need to get what we want next. It could be something as simple as a nice bicycle, or that article of clothing that would make you look awesome, right? And so we think about those things, right? And we dream of those. It could just be that that you are so investing in the future, say retirement, that all you dream of is that day when you can stop working. And you can do what? You can do whatever you want. And I think if we think that way, we can maybe appreciate uh, the challenges that this man had, who had a lot given to him. There's a quote in a book called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper Um, that goes like this. He says, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment, saying, Look, Lord, look at my great shell collection. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. These are really serious words. Because it doesn't just take being moneyed All it takes is the desire for that, and you can chase that your whole life. You can chase that your whole life. So what would make a man like this wake up? What would make him, cause him to disturb maybe some of his comfort and seek out a renegade rabbi who led a pauper's life? And there's two things I want to look at. The first is hearing about Christ and the second is what we're going to call a crisis of compassion. So, the hearing about Christ, which is our first point, is this. He, somehow, we don't know how he caught wind of who Jesus was. And caught wind of his teachings. Uh, what it just records is, uh, both when you see the story in Luke, and when you see the story in Matthew, is the Sermon on the Mount comes right before it. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus' Um, inaugural address, his first address that, um, that probably some people assume that the rest of his teaching, a lot of it just kind of flows out of the Sermon on the Mount, right? What you get there, you see over and over again throughout his teachings. And this talks about, right, with this amazing start, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And for a guy like the centurion, that probably isn't the most attractive thing blessed are the poor in spirit because there's what does he mean poor in spirit why would I why would I want to be that or, or could I be that right we have Jesus talking about how how a bad tree can't bear good fruit bad trees bear bad fruit we have been talking about not judging other people which maybe this is true and felt good about them. people people couldn't judge him um, looking at the plank in your own eye versus the the sliver in someone else's eye? The wise builder who built his house upon the solid foundation, right? Build your life upon something substantial. And maybe that kind of shook his own foundation going, is what I've built a good foundation? Or when the troubles of life and the things that come, when, when those things hit me, is what I've done Is it going to stand that challenge? And that's what brings us into his crisis of compassion. Maybe he heard, maybe he was in the crowd during the Sermon on the Mount and he heard the last story Jesus shared about the man who built his house on the sand and when the waves came and the the rain came down, all that happened was his house was just swept away. And actually, I just thought of this, where I was staying this weekend, there, there literally was this, um, this place where the whole hill had eroded and diverted the whole river, and they had to redo the road, and it just shoved two houses into the river. It's, that's kind of the story, right? Here, is, is, is your house, is your life built in a place that is safe? Because <laughs> he was probably like, no, My money won't keep me safe from what will come. And so the crisis of compassion comes when he has a servant, when he has somebody who he loves who is beyond the reach of help by his means. So this is the crisis of compassion. And compassion, I just want to say, compassion is something we take really, really serious here at the Coffee Oasis and the Refuge Church. It's one of our core values and, and when we articulate that, it says compassion is the response of God's heart for the poor and the broken. So, so when, when the centurion, who had the means of keeping himself comfortable and safe, realized that he couldn't, and there, there was something or someone that was broken and hurting that he could not protect in any way, he had a crisis of compassion and his heart was opened by the suffering servant. And what I think is so beautiful about this is where compassion is there is a beautiful imagery for the gospel at all times. Right? Even if even if there's two people who who don't know Jesus and you see one of them act in a compassionate way, there is something that you're like I'm going to start telling a gospel story there. Because, because the whole story of the gospel is, is God seeing the brokenness of the world and seeing that it could not heal itself and taking compassion on it and loving that broken world and coming to that broken world and rescuing that broken world. And so the centurion had compassion in his heart. He so loved his servant that he was disturbed And it's this beautiful disturbance, right? That If you see someone filled with that, if you see a a father or a mother who loves their child and they're sick and they're just like disturbed, that you're like, that is beautiful. But what's going to happen? So the, the centurion was moved beyond himself and beyond his means and he sought out Jesus. And this is something very near the heart of God. In Matthew 9... It speaks of Jesus and it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so the centurion, maybe without even being able to articulate it, is coming near the heart of Jesus. Okay? He can't be removed from the heart of Jesus anymore by, by money or whatever might satisfy him otherwise. Right, the, by the jet skis that are at his summer lodge. Right? And he can't, he can't be distracted by those things anymore, or whatever it might be. And, and he comes back and he goes, what am I going to do? And so he sends some people to Jesus. There's this incredible statement in the, in the opening statement of Vatican II, which was a big gathering of, of the Catholic Church in this last century, 1962 to 1965. That was on my last exam and seminar. And I got the answer right. In the opening statement it says this, it says the joys and hopes, the grief and anxiety of people of our time, particularly those who are poor and in any way afflicted are the joys and hopes, the grief and anxieties of the followers of Christ. And that is powerful. The joys and hopes, the grief and anxieties of the people of our time, particularly those who are poor and afflicted, are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of Christ's followers. And so for those who are following Jesus, when they see grief or they see anxiety of any kind, God is calling us to be compassionate towards that. So the crisis of compassion is this, that the centurion's heart was being changed and God was opening a door for the gospel to enter. And so, Jesus calls this man a man of great faith. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to end here talking about three things that, that this means. The first is that, that he humbly sought Jesus. The centurion humbly sought Jesus. And, and what I think is, is amazing about this is that, that his faith wasn't a blind faith. People talk about blind faith. It was because he had seen Jesus. He had heard Jesus. And he had seen the power of Jesus and what Jesus could do. And so he humbly sought him with everything. And he said, we know you're the one that can do it. And this is a step... As simple as it sounds, that a lot of us aren't willing to take. To humbly seek Him. To give up our other options. I, honestly, if someone were to ask me, why is it so hard for people in America to come to know Jesus? Uh, among others, there's a lot of things, but honestly, I just think we can't sit still. <laughs> um, I think in that stillness and in that silence when we don't allow other options, but we just approach the Son of God himself, there's just a tremendous amount of fear there. We want other options. We want to have other things that we can go and be look at my, I helped build the temple. Right? <laughs> look at my shell collection. right? Whatever you bring, and you're like, look, when we come to God and just humbly seek him alone... And, and the centurion, the other people are going, you should help him. The centurion didn't send that message to himself. The centurion was just going, you're the man with authority. And so we're coming to, I am not. And, and you guys might think, oh, well, he didn't go himself. And, but the, his words are this. He goes, I am not worthy to come to you. He goes, I know how it works. I know there's a, there's a line of authority here. And I'm so far below you that I'm just going to send your own people to you to beg you to do this. So are you in the place of being able to humbly seek Jesus and seek Jesus alone? Or is it Jesus with other options for you? Because that is not great faith. The second is this, that he understood authority. And his understanding of authority was nothing less than that Jesus was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's a Roman who didn't grow up assumably, with this idea of coming Messiah. And, and, and perhaps as he helped build the synagogue, he heard of this promise. We don't know how it happened, but we know now, because he understands the authority, the way the world works, is that there is a God who is powerful and over everything and can do as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say, what are you doing, right? And he comes and he goes... You can do whatever you want. And I know that. And so I'm asking that you would have mercy on me. And that is great faith. Because our faith with other options is constantly going, well, if you can do it, that'd be awesome. But if you can't, it's okay. (laughs) Like, he he was just all out. (laughs) Like, Like, you, God, you have authority. You have authority. It's not the power of democracy here. Authority, I think, why the, why the people that, the, 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 uh, Jesus' own people, why they didn't get Jesus is because authority for them resided in something other than God still. It was the authority of their nation, and it was the authority of their place of worship, Right? It wasn't authority in God himself, because God alone is powerful. And the third thing is that he shared the compassion of Jesus, and that's why he had great faith. In James, which is one of the, the later books of the New Testament, James 2, the writer says this, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you say to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. That's powerful. That's powerful. I will show you my faith by what I do. And this Shirenturian was a man of action. His faith was a faith that was alive. And he understood the authority of who God was. And he rested in that. He trusted in that. He learned from that. Trusting in the authority of God doesn't mean you know everything or you know the outcome to everything. Trusting in the authority of God means you're willing to trust Him. (laughs) Right? In Proverbs 3 it says, To trust Him with all our hearts, not to lean on our own understanding. Because our own understanding will lead us wrong so many times. But if we trust him, he will make our path straight. Do we know what that path will look like? No. But we know that at the end there's a wedding feast. And we're looking forward to that. So, I'm going to end by, by reading uh, a snippet from a, what's called the Chicago Declaration. It was a group of evangelicals that came together in 1973. Because they were, they were broken over the fact that the church had so often not shared in the compassion of Jesus. And they knew that the church could get wealthier and wealthier and maybe even do nice things like like the centurion, build synagogues, build temples, right? Build churches. But if we did nothing, that we would never find God. we as wealthy as we want. We can do awesome programs. We could buy our kids bouncy houses, each one their own bouncy house. But we wouldn't know Jesus any better. And so this is what they drew up. It says, As evangelical Christians committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the full authority of the word of God, we affirm that God lays total claim upon the lives of his people. We cannot, therefore, separate our lives in Christ from the situation in which God has placed us in the United States and the world. We confess that we have not acknowledged the complete claim of God on our lives. We acknowledge that God requires love, but we have not demonstrated the love of God to those suffering social abuses. We acknowledge that God requires justice, but we have not proclaimed or demonstrated his justice to an unjust American society. Although the Lord calls us to defend the social and economic rights of the poor and the oppressed, we have mostly remained silent. We must attack materialism of our culture and the maldistribution of the nation's wealth and services. We recognize that as a nation we play a crucial role in the imbalance and injustice Of international trade and development. Before God and a billion hungry neighbors, we must rethink our values. And that's super powerful. (laughs) It's so powerful. Because we cannot be a people who have faith without action. And I hope, I hope that things you see lead you to a crisis of compassion in your own life, that you move closer to the heart of God. Because unless we do that as a church, we will neglect the the motivation of the Spirit of God in this place to go out and relieve the weight of the poor and oppressed. Because that's what God's calling His people to do. And that could just be here. Someone comes on a Sunday morning and you see them by themselves and they are weighed down by something. (laughs) And you have a moment of compassion by reaching out to them. It could be that, that you, you know some things going on in our community. And you say, by the grace of God, we will act. Because I really believe that unless we have these crises of compassion, we will not understand and not share the heart of God. And we will develop faith that talks a lot but eventually loses its romance for God himself because God loves the poor and the oppressed. And that, that's what changed this man who had everything he needed to be a person who sought Jesus. Because he realized that money can't cure everything, but that he really, he really wanted to love. And when love motivates by acts of mercy and compassion, God is transforming a the heart there. So, God is calling you and I to follow him. And in doing that, he will crush our sense of safety and removal from the distance we have stepped back from those who need compassion the most. It will make us very uncomfortable if we seek to live for ourselves alone. The calling of God will let us love others in a way far better than we've ever been able to love them for, And it is that love that will help draw us to God himself. And I hope that we can share that together as a church. We can be very serious about that. Pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for For reminders, God, that your motivation for us is love to love our neighbors, as ourselves, as we've we desire so much to love you with our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. God, may we be a church that's as generous and compassionate. I pray that, that even from today that we will just celebrate the fact that you're calling us to love and love wholeheartedly and maybe have our hearts broken because they love so much and there are so many that need love so greatly, but all along we do it because you loved us so greatly. God, may this just lead us to worship and may that worship lead to incredible acts of mercy in our community and the world. God, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.